When you try to manage that at scale for a lot of our customers, it's really difficult to do, but they're able to do that in our platform all in one place. We have a reputation score, which is our proprietary metric that analyzes all of that business data and gives you a score of zero to 100. So it helps our customers really understand where they need to improve by listening to their customers. In the world of business finance, things change fast. Welcome to the Leaders of Modern Finance, a show where today's finance innovators discuss what the future holds. Learn from experts in the field as they explore emerging finance trends, insights, and more. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the leading accounts payable automation platform. With Stamply, collaborate easily and efficiently with invoice approvers, vendors, and anyone involved with purchases. This helps you quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Jack McCullough. I am the president and founder of the CFO Leadership Council, and I want to thank you to the Leaders of Modern Finance podcast. I also want to thank Stamply not only for putting together what is becoming the premier podcast for financial executives, but also for allowing me to participate. And knowing that I am not the star of this show, I would like to introduce our guest. Shannon Nash is the CFO of Reputation, and she's also on the board of user testing where she serves on the audit committee. It's great to have you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Before we get into it, I I always like to have the audience learn a little bit about the guests. And I know you have an interesting background in that you studied accounting and you remain a CPA, I believe, and yeah. you also have a law degree, which is a, an interesting background. But I'm curious, what led you to choose accounting as your profession? I think a lot of CPAs have this the very common story. There's somebody in their life that was that role model, that motivator that steered you to even be interested um, in accounting. For me, it was a teacher. So I think it's a very um, common story who I took a basic accounting class. They offered it in my high school. She was a CPA. She had worked at one of, at the time, probably Big Ten uh, accounting firms and was now teaching at her local high school and said, you're doing really well in this class. You should consider majoring in accounting when you go to college. That was the first time I had ever um, even thought about the fact that people major in something other than pre-law. Like I want it to be pre-law. I liked it. I liked her class. Uh, I liked what she told me were my opportunities. And then I got a summer internship with a bookkeeper in, I'm from the Washington DC area. And I never forget that the bookkeeper's company was called Numbers Inc. And she hired me as a summer intern. And I was, I was hooked. I was like, I got to get a degree in accounting, not knowing what to do in accounting. I didn't know about audit or really what the big at the time, Tim, like what they were at all. But I was just intrigued about, I liked numbers and I liked money and I liked how it impacted people's businesses and some of the clients we had and thought this would be a good major for me. So that's how it all started. That's fantastic. And what I like is that you actually kept the dream at a young age, you wanted to be a lawyer and you're able to combine both because just it's more and more common. But back then, not a lot of accountants necessarily would get a law degree. They might get a, a master's in tax or accounting or something. Again, I will also, so two things, this is all about mentors and exposure. I was exposed to law because my father was a lawyer. So I was very oh, okay. lucky to have somebody who exposed me to what could potentially be. And then I went to the University of Virginia 
And the McIntyre School of Commerce is one of the best undergrad business schools um, in the world. And yes, I'm biased, but had a professor there who, again, exposed me to, oh, you want to go to law school. Let me tell you the things you could do with a CPA and a JD. And it just opened my mind to the possibilities of there's actually a, this is a professional pathway that I could actually um, do. And so it's, that's why I'm personally, I know we'll talk about how I feel about DE&I and really exposing particularly people, women and, and people of color to opportunities. It is really about having that support early on and, and knowing what those opportunities are, because it certainly helped me. That's great. You had a, a great, we could probably talk about your early career a lot, but I'd like to, maybe there's a, one piece of advice that you got relatively early in your career and really I, made an impact. Yeah. I continue to give this piece of advice because I get, I do get asked this quite a bit. I think it's super important in your career to develop what I call the, your own personal board of advisors. And I started doing that, meaning people who along the way you're able to get to invest in you. They could be professors. They could be your bosses. They could be your colleagues. You get board of advisors who can positively impact your career path from all places. Joining organizations like CFO Leadership Council, you get advisors where you can bounce things off. And so the piece of advice I, I always say is really work on building your own personal board. Why is that important? Because when you're looking to figure out next career moves. When you're having um, questions about how you're approaching a matter, your board of advisors are people that you can approach with no judgment. And no one gets to the top alone. And my board of advisors that I've amassed amongst uh, among the years have really you know, paid off in dividends in my career. And then just also in just what I would say, bringing up the network together. Like it's just been... It, that was the advice I got very early on is that you really want to surround yourself with like-minded people in terms of trying to really, I guess I would say, really advance in the profession and, and, in, the, and in your career. And it's paid off dividends for sure. That's fantastic advice. And so there's a few things I want, but I discovered what I think is a fun fact about you. Uh, uh -oh. You produced a documentary. I did. <laughs> what was that? I'm curious. What was that like? Just I, I've never known anyone to have done so. You know, it was one of those things. I consider myself to be a lifelong learner. And I'm always curious about things. And I never, I didn't set out to want to do that type of thing at all. But got very fortunate in terms of I had worked at a couple of smaller startup organizations at a point in my career. And they all happen to be in the media and entertainment business. And so when you are running finance and back office operations for those organizations, you learn a lot about how that business works. And I was very curious about how to, to not only scale that business, but to make it profitable. And in doing so, I told you about the board of advisors, I picked up all kinds of people who were in my ear about you can do this. You should think about this because I had an idea for a project on a personal level. I have a child with autism. He's a grown adult now and on the board of advisors. And again, you find them from everywhere. There was a woman, her name is LaDonna Hughley. She is married to comedian D.L. Hughley. And she was somebody that was on my board of advisors. And I just, I was asking her because she also has a child with autism. What can we do? 
to actually get the word out, in particular in Black and Latino families, a report had just come out that said our children were diagnosed four to five years after their white counterparts. And everybody is is universally agreed that early intervention with these kids changes outcomes. So why is that? And so I went to my board of advisors, Lana was one of them, and we decided we're going to make the film. We're going to do something to get the word out about early intervention in minority communities. That's how it started. And then the fact that I had the background in terms of how to put together a project, how to raise for it, finance it, put it together, shoot it, just all came together. And then we took that thing to Cannes and we won at the American Pavilion. And I, I don't know. It's wow, just, I didn't know that story <laughs> at all. I just thought it was cool yeah. to do one. So it's one well, of those things. Good for you. So I, I want to chat a little about your experience at Reputation. And uh, for the audience, can you let them know how long have you been at Reputation? Yeah, I'm going on um, close to two years at Reputation, and I am the CFO. I started as the Chief Accounting Officer, so my accounting roots. And Reputation is a as a SaaS based platform business. I'll give you, I, I can give you a little bit about just what Reputation does. That would be great. So Reputation brings together three categories, customer experience, social experience, digital experience into a single platform. And it's really changing the way that companies use their data, especially unstructured, unsolicited data, like the Facebook posts and the Twitter posts and the all the unsolicited data and feedback that companies are getting is piped into our, our platform. We call those listening posts. And you marry that with the listening posts that are solicited, like the surveys you get on your phone when you leave a a, a business, that's a solicited listening post. When you try to manage that at scale for a lot of our customers, it's really difficult to do, but they're able to do that in our platform all in one place. And they can get up. We have a reputation score, which is our proprietary metric that analyzes all of that business data and gives you a score of zero to 100. So it helps our customers really understand where they need to improve by listening to their customers. And then I want to give a super shout out because we just had a very exciting week at Reputation. We just raised, we just closed an equity round, raised $150 million, which is the largest round in our company's history, backed by Marlin Equity Partners. And so this will help us continue that scale and that growth, expanding in EMEA, investing in our platform, bolstering our R&D product roadmap. That's where we're going at Reputation. So it's exciting times. Good for you. So you mentioned you've been there two years, uh, approximately. So did you start, join the company right around the time that the pandemic started? So COVID, so I am a COVID hire. Okay. <laughs> as, as I would say, probably about 80, 85% of my team is, are all COVID hires. Yeah. How about that? So have you met most of them at this point? Or are you still kind of... Um... The ones in the United States, because I've got some, I've got a group of folks in India and in the UK. I've never met them personally, unfortunately. But the ones in the US, we did do a, a finance get together and everybody flew to, we have an office in Scottsdale, Arizona, which is a little more open in terms of a state than California. So we all flew in and, and met this summer. And the funny thing happens when you meet people, right? The people who you think are really short are actually really tall and, and vice versa. So we went through that whole thing about, oh, my gosh, you look so much shorter on screen or so much taller on screen. And in fact, you're like six five type of thing. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. So how big is the team right now? 
I've got a team of about 30 people. And we've, when I started with the company, the, the, the finance, um, the FP&A and the accounting team was under 10 folks. It was probably about seven, seven people. So we scaled up a lot in the last almost two years. Okay. That's pretty impressive, 30 people. And I can assume raising 150 million, you're likely to grow further. But what, um, what's your philosophy on putting the team together? Do you hire for tasks or do you hire on you know, the sports world? They say you hire an athlete and that person can do any job you give them. But what's I your mean, approach to it? I, I think that for the vast majority of roles, you hire the athlete. Obviously, they have to have certain types of backgrounds. They're CPAs, all these things. They've had these type of experiences. There are some specific roles that you have to really hire for that expertise. For example, um, a director of stock admin or a, a global payroll manager. That That's a pretty specific type of role where you don't just hire um, an athlete, but certainly some of the more senior positions that we hire, you really are hiring somebody that's had exposure to the various teams in accounting, helps if they've had finance exposure and vice versa, quite frankly. And so you're hiring for that critical thinker, that person who's really energized about scaling, like excited about those opportunities, and do they fit into the culture? Because ultimately, um, it is all about the culture and the people and meshing in that way. I, I will say that um, the company, for example, never had, they, they had an accounting team that did the GL general stuff, but we brought in our first technical accountant and, and, and team. And then we grew that team to three people, which is critical as you're trying to scale, adopt RevRec 606 and lease accounting and all the things. You got to really bolster up your technical accounting team. I think the closer you get to, we like to call having that public company cadence, whatever that means for the company's exit, you're going to want to look at positions like internal audit, tax, et cetera. Okay. So yeah, you've got a wide ranging team. Now, every CFO I've spoken to, the really good CFOs, they tell me that they have a great number too, whether it be a VP of finance controller. Yeah. Can I ask, what's your relationship with is it a controller that you that reports directly to you most? Or I have a controller and had somebody in that role on the FP&A side. And quite frankly, I think you need both and they need to be strong. And given where we are today in the world of finance, either pathway could get you to the CFO role. It all depends on the exposure those positions have to the overall finance st strategy, really. Um I think some of the, the folks who are best suited to get to the, the C-suite, the CFO position are those who have spent some time in both areas. Um, and I look for people who have, or if they haven't, are interested, right, in doing, if you're the controller, are you interested in doing a little bit more FP&A and vice versa? I have somebody on my team right now who started as a financial analyst is now um, a manager in FP&A. And he came to, to us and said, will you support me taking the CPA exam? Will you give me some more exposure on the accounting and on the GL team? Can I, as a second job that I'm moonlighting at night, help the GL team a bit more? Those are the type of people who get what it's going to take, right? To really get to that kind of, that CC. Because the role of the CFO with, with, automation and systems and processes where we are today is completely different than it was, as I know, 15 years ago. It is not about like just reporting the financials. It is all about, I call it being the fortune teller and talking about where we're going. Reporting the financials is just, that's nothing. That's what you're supposed to do. 
<laughs> the good yeah, ones. Exactly. You know, something like that. In the old days, and started my career around the 1400s or so. I used to <laughs> the path to a CFO is pretty simple: study accounting in undergraduate, work in a, a big eight accounting firm, get a job as an accounting manager, controller, CFO. And obviously, that wasn't the only way, but that was a very common way for my generation, and it was fine. But now, a lot of people can make that. Somebody coming from FP&A brings a lot to the table. And there was recently a study of the Fortune 5000, and this was 2018, I'm going to say. It was the first time more MBAs, more CFOs had MBAs than CPAs. And I I think it just shows how the position becoming more strategic and and forward thinking. And intellectual curiosity is the main thing. You just give me somebody who wants to learn and I can make them a CFO. So, but I wonder how many have JDs. I wouldn't know the number. I'm going to go single digits, don't you think? So (laughs) I think so. (laughs) But I know you're in an interesting situation because you're on a board. And of course, in your role, you report to a board. But tell me, what are the sort of things that you report to your board on an ongoing basis? Yeah. So here's, and I get to ask this question quite a bit. There's kind of gap metrics. I think this is where you're going with this. And there's just KPIs you use to, to run the business. A big part of it, I think, depends on stage of the business. Like, where is this company? How close are they to being public or having that public company cadence? And I think industry matters a bit as well. So I'll talk about my industry, SaaS and and technology. And I'm at a late stage private company. There's a little bit of both. There's a To run the business, you're really looking at those SaaS metrics and those KPIs. So you're really looking at ARR. You're really looking at things like net retention, gross retention. Sales efficiency is extremely important. For every dollar I spend, how much do I make? And so that's CAC payback. That's what you're really spending a lot of time talking to the board about. Year-over-year growth rates, um, number of new logos, that type of stuff. Percent Taking revenue and looking at various OPEX categories from R&D, sales and marketing to GNA, what percentage of revenue are they in? Are they in the band that you've benchmarked? That's what you're using to run your business and your Talk, and you're reporting on that quarterly to your board. As you start thinking about being a public company and what some of those you know, metrics would be, then you start really getting into caring about gap because you're going to have to report on that publicly. So you start really caring about revenue, gap revenue. You start really caring about EBITDA, free cash flow, EPS, those type of things. And so earlier on in the company's history, you don't really report on that to the board. They don't care about it. A lot of times it's not really tracked that internally, but the closer you get to filing that S1, for example, you will care about, you'll have those internal metrics that you use to run the company that you don't report on publicly. And then you'll have those external ones that you'll start getting your board used to hearing about it and really measuring. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I planned on asking you about the old KPI versus gap type of thing, but it seems like even though you're a CPA, it seems like in terms of your day-to-day approach to running the business, you prefer the, the KPIs. Yeah, gap makes sense when you go public, right? It, it's nice that there's a rule-based system for reporting financial results rather than just leave it to the whims of the individual CFOs. Yeah. Not that right. you do anything untoward, but you, know, <laughs> uh, right. you, you just never know, right? But uh, right. it's interesting. And you being on a, you're on the audit committee. I've got that correct. Is I'm that on right? the audit committee and then I'm chair of the nomination and governance committee and I'm the lead independent director. Okay. And is the, forgive me for not knowing this, is the company private or public? Public. Okay. So does that, does your role of being on an audit committee and the other roles of a public mm-hmm. company, 
Does that impact how you approach your job as a CFO? I think it augments it, quite frankly, because you have another data set, if you will, of how you're approaching and how another company is strategically important uh, approaching its growth, how it's telling its story, how it's dealing with investor relations, all of those things. So I, if, if anything, I think it's a, a win-win um, for both the board that I'm on and my operating company for cer- certain. There's lots of similarities in, in some of the growth stories and, and what you're some of the things you're trying to tackle. Also, in, in terms of being an operator and bringing that to the board, you're able to really help strategically talk to the CFO in this case for the audit committee about some of the things he or she is going through and presenting to the audit committee because you're also dealing with some of those similar things in your day job. I'm a huge proponent of CFOs, especially while they're operating, getting on their first board. I I would like to do it full-time at some point in the retirement phase of my life. You can only do so many boards when you're an operator, but I'm glad that I got my first public board while I was an operator for sure. Yeah. And it's easier to get the first one that way, but it used to be like, not ancient history, but like at Sarbanes-Oxley, suddenly a decent number of CFOs had board opportunities, but it was only, and it was always for the audit committee because they needed a financial expert and two more than a CFO, but they were only valued for that. But now with the, the but people like you who think strategically and don't think just in terms of debits and credits and numbers, you're making an impact across the entire enterprise. I think. Yeah, so yeah. you're, you're improving the reputation of the whole profession. So now one of the things I tell CFOs is the cutting edge, not only for them in their career path, but for the companies they work for is understanding and investing in technology because beginning of COVID, there was some people had an instinct not to spend money. And like, no, your competition is spending money and they're spending, they're going through digitalization and it's going to give them an advantage over you. So even if you survive, they're going to crush you. Can you talk a little about your your tech stack at Reputation? Yeah. And I think this is, so for a lot of of the listeners and companies, you're looking at what your ERP system, you're looking at your CRM from a sales standpoint. I mean, you're looking at your HRAS from a, a people standpoint. Those are the workhorse like systems and everything else, a lot of times bolts on top of that. And because you really want to have that single source of data that everything feeds into so that we're all working off the same data sets. I slice it a little bit different than you slice it over there. For example, finance is looking at attrition rates for, for certain reasons and certain metrics, but HR is looking at them too. And you want to make sure you're looking at the same data sets and mm-hmm. chopping up that, that information. We've had, we have spent the last year and a half really investing. We implemented a new ERP system during COVID. We implemented a new HRIS system during COVID because we've grown so much during COVID. We're almost at about 700 employees now. We have spent some time, our CRM system is Salesforce. We spent some time with Salesforce cleanup and some add-ons to Salesforce. Companies like Clary that help us with forecasting, like spending a lot of time making sure that we can get to the right data and and use it for purposes of all of our trend analysis and really helping us like forecast how the business is, is doing. One thing I will say though about that tech stack, just like every CFO will tell you, um, it's important to get it. It's important to get the automation in, build whatever you get quoted in terms of how long it's going to take, double it. <laughs> just and, double it. And then even double that estimate. <laughs> and then double too. that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so. 
Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I, earlier in my career, I was a CFO for 26 companies. I was part-time. I wasn't working 40 hours a week in any of them, but I just saw a lot of different things. And I never saw anything hit the, hit the goal. Right. And people were working hard and they were smart, dedicated people making the right decisions. And it was just an impossible goal. So I'm glad I didn't imagine that, but somebody that I, I've got some modern validation for it. So, but uh, one thing I wanted to chat with you about, and you actually referenced this earlier, but you're very passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And you being a female and a person of color, and you're in three fields, you're in finance, the legal field, and of course, technology, where I think some strides are being made, but maybe the results aren't there just yet. But can you talk a little bit about that, if you would, how you know it's affected you? Yeah. So yes, the numbers are low. And anything that we've learned from COVID and George Floyd is that we have to do something about it. It's not like that people weren't working hard before or trying to... to increase diversity. I don't mean that to, to say that, nor do I say that there's been no improvement made. I don't mean that either. But I, I just think that coming off of those things last year in particular, it just put a, a whole bigger flashlight on the problem. Less than 1% of all CPAs are African-American. And that number hasn't changed Less in like 50 1%. years. Less than one. Wow. Once that sunk in for me, <laughs> I actually helped. I started a, a Facebook group for Black CPAs. I helped co-found an organization called National Society of Black CPAs. Whole focus is really to just increase the numbers in the profession, not to, to then there's other organizations doing that. It's really to partner with other organizations. I happen to be super involved actually with Cal CPA, California CPA Society. I'm on the Diversity and Equity Commission there, I spent a lot of my time helping to, to diverse, do diversity um, programs for Cal CPA because I believe it's important to be seen. You have to see it to believe it. You have to get in the network to get the opportunities. And that's what I'm really passionate about. I had a very, very lucky experience early in my career where I got to be an expat in Switzerland working for a large biotechnology company. And nice. that was the first time in my life where I can tell you, I saw like a lot of diversity, diversity of all kinds of ways that you can cut and slice it when I worked over in, in, in Switzerland. Switzerland. Yeah, because you have yeah. a lot of different nationalities, cultures, all embarked in one, especially in Switzerland, because a lot of especially pharma companies will go there to open up their European headquarters. So you have a lot of people who are piped in to the location. And I loved it. I love it was powerful to see people of all races and ethnicities coming together to build a company. And so I, I've seen it. I know it can happen. Mm -hmm. So how can I be part of the solution? And I will say this next part of my career, I'm very vocal about it. And I'm going to spend a lot of time of my personal time, making sure that I'm speaking out that I'm helping wherever I can to get more people not only interested in the profession, but then when they're in the profession, staying in the profession. It's also one of those things where I ask other professionals to, to do the same because it only helps us as a combined group 
to be diverse. And and here, I'm not the expert on all the research, but there's a ton of them out there. You can do a Google search and see and get all the stats. McKinsey and CalCPA have all done these studies to show that diverse teams outperform. And you can go through all the metrics that they go, they go to, to prove that they outperform non-diverse teams. So the business case has been made. It's now time to get people to really act upon that business case. So that, you can probably hear the passion in my voice. That is a, a, yeah, a yeah, big sure. part of, of who I am and, and where I'm going to spend the remainder of my career. Yeah, it's interesting because like that debate is over, right? Unless a lot of right. people are simply faking the research, there's not really a whole lot of doubt that diversity strengths everything, right? You know, companies, teams at colleges and universities, whatever it might be. It's, you know, just, just look around. The, the companies that have embraced diversity as part of their corporate culture outperform those that don't in the executive level, at the board level, and at the rank and file employee level too. But you mentioned the 1% number startles me. Just I worked a few years ago at KPMG and my eyeballs would have told me that it was higher than 1%. Of course, I was in Boston, which is reasonably racially diverse. But it's interesting. How about for women? Have they made... They must be about half of CPAs by I now, think, no? I will say women have made more more inroads. I'll, I'll take give you an example of user testing. The board that I'm on, um, the three committees, audit committee, compensation committee, NOMGov committee are all chaired by women. Really? And that is, I'm sure, I don't know the stats, but I'm sure when you look at all the public companies out there, we're in the minority of having all of the board committees chaired by women. So my point to you is you're seeing a lot of inroads. Um, There's still work to to be done, but you're seeing inroads in terms of gender, um, more gender parity. And that's good. Like it's all going in the right direction. You just want people to have equal access, be in the network and be able to perform regardless of these other attributes. Um, Yeah, I think it's a little bit better, but there's still work to be done. And again, that's what I plan to do for the rest of whatever career I have. And good for you, because it's maddeningly slow, right? I entered the workforce in the 1980s, and it was supposedly a priority then. And now, 35, 40 years later, we're, we're still not where we should be in a fair and just society. So good for you to taking the lead on that. But I wanted to ask you one uh, question to wrap things up, Shannon, if I may. And early on, I asked what some of the best career advice you got early in your career. And I want to give you a chance to return the favor without giving the exact same advice you got. But is there some advice you can give for the modern finance leader and maybe towards the folks that are six months to two years from getting that first CFO type of job? Yeah, the board of advisors is one of the things I already talked about. So I think that's um, still super important. I think the other thing um, is it's twofold. It's really, spend a, you need to spend a lot of time investing in yourself. You can't expect somebody to come and just anoint you. And by that, look at what you feel you have as a gap. There's always something that you could learn. Even as a CFO, there's always something that I could learn that could help me in my role. Figure out what those things are and invest in yourself. It doesn't The company doesn't have to invest in me. I invest in me. I pay for it. I get on the phone. I, organizations like, I, I will give a, this is a genuine story and not a plug. CFO Leadership Council is amazing. I go on there. I can ask any question. Hey, has anybody done this before? Are you willing to share the 
context? Or are you willing to share your PowerPoint? Or are you willing to share your Excel file for how you did name the thing? And I'm going to get 10, 20, 30 responses by just oh, yeah. connect, like easily. Every single time I've posted, sometimes I get Jack, so many responses, I can't go through them all. <laughs> because it's just, just so, it's so overwhelming. It's such a supportive group and network. And so when I say invest in yourself, that it's worth every dime to be a member as I'm investing in getting better at what it is I do. And I've got thousands of members, I'm sure, of colleagues out there who are willing to help me get to what I want to get to. So I think things like that are, are, are just, they're a must. And then I think the other thing is build your brand. You have to do some sort of brand building of yourself, whatever that may be, because successful CFOs are like the right hand of the CEO and the board. They are that conciliary, that counsel. But that's part of you have to build a brand so that people trust that relationship. So I talk about investing in building whatever that brand is in your industry, could be from speaking, could be from doing all kinds of things, writing, blogs, whatever it is. A lot of speaking that I do is internal to my organization. So I'll raise my hand. I'm speaking at the all hands. I re- it's, I'm going to, hey, we should do, my team should do a training of stock options one-on-one for the whole com- company, that type of stuff. Build your internal brand. Those are the type of things I would say if you're six to eight months out or a year out that it's low hanging fruit. Yeah. And it's interesting. Someone told me, gave me that advice on branding and she was a coach. So she does for a living, but she told me something that maybe shouldn't have been obvious, but it wasn't to me. It's like, you have a brand. It's just whether or not you are aware of what your brand is and how much effort you want to put into controlling it. What do you want your brand to be? You live in a world right now, you can set your own brand to a certain extent. So, well, this, Shannon, this has just been absolutely a, a great conversation. I know uh, you're busy, so I do want to thank you for your time and congratulate you also for that recent capital raise. I also want to thank Stampley again for putting together, if you, you look at their website, they've had some fantastic speakers and just taking some leadership in empowering CFOs, which is my mission too. And also just for including me in this is a, uh, Really my honor to interview high quality CFOs. Thank you. It was my pleasure to, to be on here. Thank you for listening to the Leaders of Modern Finance podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review. You can see the show notes and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at stamply.com slash leaders of modern finance. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Stamply the most powerful way to process and pay invoices. Stamply is the only accounts payable automation software that centers communication on top of the invoice so that accounts payable collaborates better with approvers, vendors, and anyone involved in purchases to quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com.